<laughs> I hope that made you feel awkward, as watching a grown man drink milk from a bottle should. That's actually the imagery in our text today, believe it or not, as we continue on with our study in the book of Hebrews. That's the imagery that we get from the preacher of Hebrews. And we're going to read it in just a minute here. But before we read the text, I want to give you a little bit of context for this specific text for this morning. As we've been going through the book of Hebrews, I think to understand our text for today, which is a highly controversial and debated passage, it's one of the most debated passages in Scripture. And I think in order for us to rightly understand it, it's helpful for us to remember the context of it in the context of the book of Hebrews. Now remember, we're looking at Hebrews more as a sermon given in the first century. It's, it's largely believed that this was a sermon that was transcribed rather than a letter like much of the New Testament. This was actually a sermon given to a local church that was transcribed. And I think when we think about this book as a sermon, it helps us to make sense of this highly debated passage. And I think it helps us to understand what's going on here. So a little bit of background through the book of Hebrews. What we've covered so far is the author of Hebrews is trying to over and over again get us to understand that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the angels who the, the first century Jews tended to worship and elevate the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. The first century Jews thought very highly of Moses as the man that got appointed to lead them out of slavery in Egypt and towards the promised land. And the author of Hebrews, the preacher of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua, the one who led you into the promised land. He's better than the promised land. The promised land signified God's rest for us. And Jesus is a better rest for us than the promised land. And he's better than the high priest. That was last week in chapter 4, verse 14. Look at that with me. It's on page 1003 in the Pew Bible. He says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus. So that was last week. We looked at, we started to dig into this idea that Jesus is better than the high priest. And that's where the preacher of Hebrews is going. He's bringing his church into this idea that in the Old Testament, they had this high priest system and, and, and it was so important and so significant for them. And the first century Jewish Christians tended to look back there and say, well, what about the high priest? What about the Old Testament system? What about the Old Testament law? And so the preacher of Hebrews is about to dig into this long exposition about Jesus as a better high priest. And so he opens it up and he starts to talk about it. And last week we covered 4.14 through 5 verse 10. And then today we're going to pick it up in chapter 5 verse 11. But what's happening here, and, and I think if we're thinking about this in terms of a sermon, I think what's happening here is he digs into Jesus being the better high priest and he looks out at who's he, who he's communicating with, and it seems like maybe he sees some people dozing off. He sees some eyes glazed over. He sees some people kind of checking out. And he does this startling thing. He says, hey, wake up! You, sleeping, you sleepers, wake up! That's essentially, I think, what's happening here in the book of Hebrews. He warns his listeners. He startles his listeners. He interrupts his own train of thought about Jesus being a better high priest to say, this matters. Let's re-engage. Let's think about this. Let's consider this deeply. I don't know if any of you have ever been in a sermon where a preacher has done that. I haven't called any of you out by name yet as you've fallen asleep on me. Um, but it happened to me when I was in high school. So my dad was a pastor, and when I was in high school, um, I think I was in 10th grade, I was sitting, usually my family sat right here, kind of where my family sits, but this one Sunday I was sitting further back with some high school friends, and we were passing notes back and forth, and I was drowning out my dad's voice preaching like you do. And um, 
So we're passing notes back and forth, and all of a sudden I hear his voice. I mean, it, I had drowned it out, right? It was kind of background noise, but all of a sudden I hear Andrew come through the speakers, and I'm like, oh no, this is different. I, I hear my name called out, and he said something along the lines of, whatever you're doing back there, it better be worth disrespecting me and God. And it, it straightened me up. It called me to attention, and for the rest of that Sunday, I paid attention. At least that Sunday. Back, the next Sunday, I was probably back to the same thing. But I think that's essentially what the author of Hebrews is doing here. He's communicating to his people and he's saying, Jesus is a greater high priest and this is an incredible journey that we're going to go on to see how he's a better high priest. And it's going to be good for your faith and it's going to be good for your edification. It's going to build you up into Christ-likeness and it's going to send you out into the world as effective neighbors and witness of Jesus Christ. But you're tuning out. You're falling asleep. You're uninterested in the things of God. And so with that kind of in mind, let's stand and read the passage and then we'll dig into it. The passage is on page 1003 in the Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, please take that Bible with you. And I encourage all of you to get the Bible open and look at it for yourselves so it's not me talking, but God's Word talking to you this morning. So Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 11, and we'll go through chapter 6, verse 12. Follow along as I read. About this we have much to say. And what did he just get done speaking about. Jesus as the great high priest, right? So he's digging into this idea of Jesus as the great high priest, and, he's, and he says, he interrupts himself. He's talking about the high priest and Melchizedek, which we'll get to in two weeks. But he's about to dig into this, and he interrupts his own sermon. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. We're about to go into some deep, deeper teaching that's hard to unpack. It's hard to explain, but specifically, because you have become dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have, by their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, those who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For a land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it has been cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned." Though we speak in this way, yet you, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you show for his saints, for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who, who through faith and patience inherit the promises. God, we thank you for this word. I pray that you would speak to us 
this morning. I pray that you would use this passage to grow us up into Christ-likeness, that we wouldn't be like double-minded people tossed to and fro by the waves, that we wouldn't be people who constantly go to the bottle for milk, but that we could handle solid food for the nourishment of our souls. And Jesus, we believe that you are that solid food for us. And so I pray that we would see you more clearly this morning, and I pray that we would walk out of here able to obey you more robustly with a greater joy for what you've done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. You may have a seat. So to just kind of summarize, I think the big idea, the point here of this passage and what I think the author of Hebrews, the preacher of Hebrews is trying to get through to us, that assurance of salvation is a byproduct of Christian maturity. Assurance of salvation is a byproduct of Christian maturity. Assurance of salvation, period, is a debated issue. Some people aren't sure if you can have assurance of salvation. Some people aren't sure if you can lose your salvation. Once you're saved, are you always saved? Can you walk away from salvation? Can you walk away from Christ? And this passage digs into that. We're going to deal with that this morning. But I want us to start by looking at this idea that assurance of salvation is simply a byproduct of Christian maturity. The only way for you to grow towards having assurance of your salvation, to know that you know that you know that when you die, you will be with God forever, is by growing up in your Christian walk. I want to say salvation Salvation is a product of Jesus' finished work on the cross. Salvation has nothing to do with us. We see that over and over again in the scriptures, in the book of Hebrews. We talk about that every Sunday at Park Community Church, that you can do nothing to earn your own salvation. Salvation is purely a product of Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross. He calls us, he redeems us, he lives the perfect life. We, we pray often that Jesus lived the life that we couldn't and died the death that we should have. Salvation is secured. It is a product of Jesus. But you and I, being sure of our salvation, for us to have any assurance that we are saved, the only way to get that assurance is to grow up into Christ. The only way to feel safe and secure with God is that we actually mature in our faith. And don't we need to feel safe and secure with God? So many people walk through life. In fact, there's I, this, uh, my, my grandma, my grandma when she was, um, she, she grew up Catholic and remained Catholic her, her whole life and I believe that she loved Jesus. I believed that she is saved and with God the Father. But in her upbringing and in her Catholic tradition, there was a lot of works-based righteousness. And in fact, near the last days of her life, she said, I just, I just hope that I did enough good that God will accept me. And we reminded her once again that, Grandma, you could never do enough good that God would accept you. Jesus did that for you. And she said, oh, that's right. I, I know. I believe. And so the only way that we can have assurance of that salvation isn't to look at ourselves. It's not to wonder if our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. If we've done enough good to receive salvation, it's to look to Jesus Know that salvation is a product of what he's done for us, but then for us to grow up and for us to have security, for us to have assurance of that, we need to grow into Christ. And oh, how our culture and oh, how our church needs to not feel like God will cut them off if they're in the midst of sin. How tragic if people are wondering, if I'm living my life and I commit a sin and I get in a car crash before I have a chance to confess that sin, will I go to hell forever? That's no way to live. 
And that's not the way that I believe God wants us to live. And it's not the way that the preacher of Hebrews wants us to live. He's giving us some warning. He's giving us some encouragement to cause us to assess. But the point is that we would grow up into Christ. That we would become mature in our Christ-likeness. That we could have assurance of our salvation. And they work together. As you grow, the more sure of your salvation you become. And so the preacher, I think in this passage, he gives us 10 signs of maturity. 10 marks of maturity and 10 marks of immaturity. And really, they're just two sides of a coin. Either, either you are mature or you aren't mature. And so actually, they're not two sides of a coin because that's one thing, right? They're two opposites. You either have one or you have the other. And so I'm going to walk through this passage and look at the 10 marks of immaturity and the 10 marks of maturity. There's a graph on the back of your bulletin. You can fill it in as we go. And I encourage all of us to really assess this Assess ourselves in light of this passage, and that's not for us to doubt our salvation as much as it is for us to look to Christ, the author and finisher of our salvation, and to say, where am I on the maturity scale? And how do I grow up in maturity? What does it look like for me to grow as a mature Christian? So let's go through this passage. We're just going to walk through it verse by verse and look at the marks of maturity and the marks of immaturity. He starts right here in verse 11. About this we have much to say. Remember, he's interrupting himself. He's about to go into the high priesthood and into Melchizedek. I have much to say, and we're going to get that much of what he has to say over the coming weeks. But it's hard to explain because you have become dull of hearing. A mark of immaturity is hearing but never doing. And a mark of maturity is hearing and doing. He says, you have become dull of hearing. You hear the gospel, you've heard about Jesus, you're in the church, you're hearing these things over and over and over again, but you're living a life of disobedience. There's this hypocrisy in your life where you keep hearing, but you never apply. And to be sure, we're all hypocrites to a certain level, right? We all want to be and we all espouse to be something that we can't become or that we are slower in becoming than we would like to be. And so, don't hear me saying that if, you, if you've never applied everything that you've heard, you are immature or you are a non-believer. But this is a clear mark in this passage. When you hear the gospel, when you hear the good news of Jesus, when you hear the truth of Scripture, do you tend to do it or, you tend, or do you tend to ignore it? Oftentimes, people in the immature camp are the people with the most Bible knowledge. They know everything about the Bible, but they do very little of it. That's a really scary place to be. In fact, if you're a new Christian, you know, we have some new Christians and some baby Christians in our church. If you know a little bit about God's word and you're doing it, praise God, you're probably likely more mature than people who have been in the church for years and know everything, and yet they're doing very little. So a mark of maturity is, are we obeying what we know? Do we want to do Bible study so that we would know more and know more and know more? Or do we do Bible study so that we could do more? So that we could be obedient to what God has called us to? A mark of maturity is doing what we're learning in the scriptures. The next one, learning but never teaching. It's similar, right? I mean, he goes on to say, you're dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. He's saying you've learned, you've heard, but you're not passing the faith on to anyone. What was Jesus' greatest commandment? Commandment is to love God, the Lord, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then the greatest commission is to go, go out and make disciples. And I think the author of Hebrews is probably picking up on that. The preacher of Hebrews, he knew the teachings of Jesus. 
And, and he's probably thinking here, if Jesus commanded us to go and make disciples, then that means we have to take what we know, we have to apply it, and then we have to take what we know and we have to teach others. We have to make disciples. This doesn't mean that you have to lead a deep Bible study in the original Greek language. What it means is that you have to take what you know, the basics of the gospel, the truth about Jesus Christ, and a mark of maturity is, can you lead someone else into the truth of Jesus Christ? Can you make a disciple? Can you make a follower of Jesus? Can you take somebody and say, hey, let me introduce you to Jesus. Let me open up my life to you. Let, let, come into my home, come into my life and observe how I live and let me make a disciple of you. Let me teach you the things of Jesus. Jesus' commission said, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. Now, praise the Lord, this is in the context of a community, right? You as an individual Christian, you are not responsible to teach somebody to obey all that Jesus has commanded. But we, the church, are responsible to teach people to obey all that Jesus has commanded. And so a mark of maturity is you doing your part. It's you saying, okay, what do I know? What are the things that I know to be true about God, that I know to be true about his word? And can I teach someone else? Can I instruct someone else, even at the most basic level, about those things? That's a mark of maturity. The next one is a mark of immaturity is needing milk. You constantly need milk. And a mark of maturity is that you're able to enjoy solid food. Look at 12 through 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So a mark of immaturity is that you constantly need milk. We're going to talk about what milk is and what solid food is with the next point. But just keep in mind that immaturity is you, you need what, it, it was that video, right? I mean, how absurd to watch an adult drinking milk from a bottle. And actually, probably in context, think about an adult going to the mother to drink from the mother. I mean, that's, I think, what the author of Hebrews here is getting across. We think, oh, don't bring my mind there. Don't give me that imagery. He is thinking about little babies sucking from the teat of their mother. That's what he is saying to his congregation. He is saying, you need milk. You have to go to your mother. This is so absurd that you know about Jesus and you can't handle more. It's time for us to get in the game. It's time for us to consider what solid food would look like. And as we grow up into Christ, we can handle solid food. We can enjoy steak and shrimp. I was out on Cedar Lake Trail this last weekend and I found a cell phone in a bag. And I thought it was just laying on the trail. No one was around. So I figured out I better bring this home and try and get a hold of the owner of this phone. So I brought it home. We found the owner. We call, well, we found the mom of the owner. There was a missed call from mom. So we hit call back. We called mom and mom said, oh yeah, our son is out bike riding. We'll let him know. And so he came by, picked up his phone. The next day, he dropped off a $100 gift card for Brittany and I to a local restaurant. It was amazing. So on Friday night, we went out and I had steak and shrimp. It was awesome. <laughs> Way better than a glass of milk. And what the author of Hebrews is telling us is that as we grow up, as we mature, there's, there's some more substance. There's some more flavor. There's something more savory for you in the gospel than just the milk. Grow up from the milk. It's time for you to take in more and to handle more. 
It says, for the mature can handle solid food, but the immature needs constant milk. And so what is milk and what is food? I think he gets into that here. For one, a mark of immaturity, he says it here at the end of verse 14. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So a mature person can distinguish good from evil. They can tell what's good. They can tell what is evil. An immature person can't tell good from evil. So a mark of food is what is good. What does God call good? And can we handle that? Can we live in that? And then a mark of immaturity is I, I can't tell good and evil. I don't have a discernment filter. I'm not sure if this TV show or that TV show or if this conversation or that conversation or if this way of using my money or that way of using my money or this way of making decisions or that way of making decisions. I can't tell what's good and evil and everything gets clustered and confused. A mark of maturity is that we grow up and we can actually distinguish, hey, this is the right way for me to use my money. This is the wrong way. This is the right way for me to treat my neighbors. This is the wrong way. This is the right way for me to engage with media. This is the wrong way. A mark of maturity is growing up in that. And then we continue in the passage, and here's where it starts to get controversial. Nobody really wrestles with those first couple verses that we just looked at, but as we move into chapter 6, it starts to get controversial. And the mark of maturity here is that the, the immature person remains on the elementary doctrines of Christ. You notice verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity. So maturity is leaving the elementary doctrines. And you'll see in there that I put Messiah instead of Christ. Christ is our English translation here, but in their context, they would have heard Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so the first century Jews are hearing Messiah. What, what's happening here in context is they're thinking about all of the Old Testament stuff. This first century Jewish church filled with Jewish believers, they're wrestling with the elementary doctrines of Messiah is the Old Testament law, the Old Testament washings, the Old Testament practice. And so maturity isn't understanding how to parse a Greek phrase to them. Maturity isn't understanding how to lead the deepest Bible study that the people have ever been through. Maturity isn't about increasing head knowledge about God and Jesus Christ. Maturity isn't about figuring out how the Trinity works. Good luck. We're never going to figure that out. Maturity is to leave the Old Testament and live in the New Testament, the New Covenant reality. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ or Messiah and go on to maturity, not laying again what? The foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instructions about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. He's saying to grow up means to move out of the Old Testament basics and into the New Testament reality where we can see and savor Jesus Christ. Solid food is seeing and savoring Jesus the Messiah, as the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament law. He says to move on from elementary doctrines is to not lay again the foundation of repentance, verse 1 and 2. Not lay again the foundation of repentance of dead works and faith towards God. What was the Old Testament law, all of the works? It was dead. It couldn't give them life. It couldn't give them new life. It pointed out their need for a savior. It showed them how unclean they were. It showed them how unfaithful they were. It showed them how fickle they were. And in the midst of that, 
it showed how faithful God was as he sent the Messiah, Jesus, his son. And so to grow up, I mean, oftentimes in the church, we read this passage, milk and food and leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and grow up into maturity. We think about more head knowledge, do we not? If you've been in the church for any level of time, you've experienced somebody judging someone who doesn't know where to find a book in the Bible without looking at their table of contents. If somebody is a newer Christian and they have to look in their table of contents to find where the book is, but they're actually doing what the book says, they're likely more mature than the person who's like, oh, they don't know where Philippians is. But they're not putting others more, considering others more significant than themselves. I mean, oftentimes a newer believer, they they apply what they know because they don't know as much. And as we grow up, as we're in the church, sometimes we fail to grow up because we know all of these things and we fail to do these things. And so that's some of what this, uh, this passage is getting at. He's saying it's time for you to grow up. It's time for you to see and savor Christ. Stop looking at your own works. Stop looking at the Old Testament. Stop looking at how you can become better and start looking to Jesus and grow up into Christ, leaving the elementary, teacher, elementary teachings, doctrines of Christ of the Messiah, of the coming Messiah in the Old Testament, of the promised Messiah, means to grab hold of the New Testament reality of the Messiah. It means to embrace him. It means to, as we looked at last week in chapter 4, it means to hold fast your confession. And it means to draw near to the throne of grace. That's what it looks like to grow up, to move on from elementary doctrines. In context here, the elementary doctrine was them wondering, Can we actually go into the presence of God? Because only the high priest could do that on the day of atonement. And the preacher to the the church is saying, yeah, that's elementary. What's now advanced, the primary grades, is that you can go into the presence of God with confidence. He's made a way through Jesus, the Son. So grow up, believe that, embrace that, live in that. The next one, verse 4, is um, this is a highly debated, controversial passage as well. What I'm going to say here is that a mark of immaturity is to be enlightened but not regenerated. Regenerated means the Holy Spirit has given you new life. He has worked in your heart and he has, he has given you this new birth. You have been born again. So a mark of immaturity is to know, to know about Christ but not to have him living and dwelling within you and producing in you new life. And then a mark of maturity is to know about him and to have him living and dwelling in you, giving you new life. Look at verse 4 through 6. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away. We'll stop right there. We'll get into the fall away phrase in just a minute. I think what he's saying here is that there is a way, and and we know people like this. If you've been around in the church for a period of time, you know people like this. They've been a part of the community. You've heard them pray out loud. Their prayers seemed genuine. It seemed like they were a Christian. It seemed like they were in, but now there's, there's no fruit. There's no sign of them being in the community. There's no sign of them. They, they don't want to attend church. They don't want to be a part of a community group. They don't want to pray. They don't want to read the Bible. Maybe they've outright rejected Christ. And so people split on this passage. Does that mean that at one point you can be saved and then you can reject your salvation? I think rather than trying to figure that out, we have to consider the warning is here. 
The warning is here for us. And what I think he's getting at is that there's people who know all about Christ. They even engage in the community in a way that it seems as though they are a part of it. But if they leave, if they do not remain, if they do not persevere, that is evidence that they were enlightened but not regenerated. So personally, I I believe once we are in Christ, once we are adopted, God doesn't unadopt us. And there's tons of evidence in in the New Testament about this. I mean, Jesus saying, I know my sheep. I don't lose my sheep. My sheep are in my hand. I'll persevere them until the end. There's many passages in the New Testament that would give us assurance of salvation. Say, if you are in Christ, you are in Christ. So I think what he's doing here is writing to those who are around. They know some things about God. They know some things about Messiah. They've even demonstrated some level of fruit. But they're very falling away, as the next passage says. They're falling away. This is a mark of immaturity and maturity. Falling away from confession and community and then persevering in confession and community. A mark of maturity is that you remain in the church. You remain with believers. You continue to confess as chapter 4, verse 14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. A mark of maturity is that you hold fast that confession, that you continue to confess Christ, that you continue to believe in Christ, that you continue then also to be with the community. And so a mark of immaturity and one of the first indicators that somebody was never genuinely regenerated, maybe they knew about God, maybe they talked about God, maybe they even prayed in a way that made it seem like they had a relationship with God, one of the first indicators and in, in marks for us to call out to that person and to try and bring them back in is if they start to drift from confession and community. If they stop confessing with their mouth, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is good, Jesus is God, I love Jesus, I want more of Jesus. If, if, they, if they're not doing that, that's a sign. It should be concerning to us. And if they start to drift from community, that doesn't mean like, hey, they got sick two weeks in a row and they didn't show up to church or they were on vacation for a couple weekends and, you know, summertime hits and they're off at their cabin all summer. Although, as a church body, we should encourage people to say, hey, how are you nourishing your soul? How are you continuing to confess Jesus as Lord? Are you falling away or are you just away? And so we need the community to help us discern that and to discover that. And the only mark of true maturity and true salvation is that we persevere until the end. The warning is here. I think he's talking to those who, he's warning those who are around. They're enlightened but not regenerated. And the warning is also the actual means for those who are actually regenerated to, to hold these things in tension and, and to say, the only way that I can be sure of my salvation is if I continue to confess and if I continue in the community. If I fall away, I have zero assurance of salvation. I can't be sure that I will be with God forever in eternity if I don't remain, if I don't persevere, if I don't press on, if I don't run the race, as it goes on to say in Hebrews. This this, um, community, they were falling away from religious pressure. So in the first century, there there were these Jewish believers that were stressing and putting pressure on these Uh, Jewish non-believers that were putting pressure on Jewish believers to go back to the Old Testament practice, to go back to the law, to go back to the washings, to go back to all of that. As it says here, the laying on of hands, 
I think he's referring to the Day of Atonement when the priest laid his hands on the head of the goat, the goat of expiation, symbolically placing the sins of the people on the goat, and then they would send the goat, goat out into the wilderness, running away. And the, the psalm, um, as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our transgressions from us? That's the imagery, that's the picture there. That was Old Testament practice. And so he's saying, don't go back to talking about the goat of expiation or the goat of propitiation. Jesus is now your expiator. Jesus is now your propitiation. He's the one who removes the sins. He's the one who satisfies God's wrath. Don't go back to the Old Testament. And so they were falling away because there was religious pressure in the church to do more. Have you ever felt that? Religious pressure in the church to act like you have it all together. Religious pressure in the church to attend more. Religious pressure in the church to do this or to do that. Now, we need to give one another some good pressure to make sure we're not falling away. But have you ever felt this judgment? That's what was happening here in the first century. They were putting pressure on the Jewish believers to say, well, you can't neglect all the Old Testament. And so there's religious pressure for them to fall away. There was cultural persecution they were ostracized in the culture because they were claiming something that was countercultural. Do we experience that? Cultural persecution, cultural pressure, that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. No one can have eternal salvation except through him. That sounds pretty exclusive. That sounds pretty, pretty judgmental. And yet, in that, he's warning them to remain with Christ. Don't fall away from cultural oppression. And then the world's attractions is another thing that draws people away. So they can be enlightened, they can be in the community, they can know about Christ, but then when religious pressure comes, they can abandon the gospel, they can put down the gospel and pick up religious duty. They can put down the gospel, ignore the gospel, never fully receive the gospel, and go with cultural pressure or the world's attractions. The world looks too good, and so I'm going to chase the world. I'm going to give up on this Christ thing. I tried it out. It didn't really work for me. You were enlightened, not regenerated. As we read this passage, particularly chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, we should think about Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 23. I'm not going to turn there now, but jot that down and look at that on your own. It's Jesus telling a parable of seed being cast on different different ground. And some t- took root and it grew up and it, and it showed genuine fruit of salvation. Some was snatched by birds. Some, the, the soil wasn't deep enough and so it grew up just a little ways and withered. And then some grew up with thorns and thistles and they, they um, overtook the growth. And so write down Matthew chapter 13, 1 through 23. And I think, again, the preacher of Hebrews is probably keeping that in mind. He knows Jesus' teachings. He's saying, if, if we don't bear fruit, that's a sign that we're immature. If we fall away, if we don't persevere, that's a sign. Let's keep moving. A couple more here. Though we speak this way, so I love this, verse 9, though we speak this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So he startled them. Wake up. This stuff matters. Start to consider your level of maturity. And does your maturity show that you have a genuine, regenerated faith or just that you're hanging out with these people and you've never received Christ as Lord? Wake up. And he says, though I warn you, I feel, I feel good about you. I believe better things for you. And he moves on. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love you showed for his sake in serving the saints. 
a sign of maturity is to serve others, specifically to serve the saints, to serve the Christians. And we don't work, as he says, God doesn't overlook your work. Our works don't earn our salvation. Our works are a sign of our salvation. They're a sign of maturity. We grow and we mature as we serve others. The immature expect to be served. What do you got for me, pastor? What's your word for me today? What do you got for me, worship team? Are you going to stir my affections for Jesus today? Because somebody needs to stir those for me. What do you got for me, community group? I need something. What do you got for me, neighbor? I need something. What do you got for me? The immature person expects to always be served. But the mature person says, neighbor, what do you need? How can I serve you? How can I help you? Coworker, what do you need? How can I serve you? How can I help you? Church, what do you need? What does the church need? What kind of music does my church need? It's not about me. It's about my church. Pastor, maybe you had a terrible week. And if the sermon doesn't come through very clearly and well, I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to serve you. What do you need? And so a sign of maturity is serving others, a sign of immaturity, expecting to be served. Verse 11, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end. There's that perseverance thing. Full assurance until the end. A mark of immaturity is no assurance. You question, you doubt, you're not sure if you're saved. If you sin and screw up, did God abandon me? But a sign of maturity is that you have full assurance and hope until the end. You're persevering. You know that you are right with God. How do you get right with God? That's not rhetorical. I want to hear an answer. How are we right with God? Jesus, amen. Sunday school answer, the right answer. A sign of maturity is that you know that Jesus, in Jesus, you are made right with God. That God the Father looks at you, he sees you as a holy set-apart son or daughter, and you grow in that assurance. You know that you and God are okay. Isn't that incredible? That God is okay with you and you can have assurance of that? That God, the heavenly, holy Father, who's perfect, is okay with me. He's good with me. He's pleased with me. He's accepting of me. And he welcomes me into his presence. As Hebrews 4, 7, 8, 16 says, we can go into his presence with confidence. We can enter the throne of grace. And then the last mark of immaturity, maturity, is that immature people are sluggish. And mature people imitate others' faith. Look at verse 12. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Immature people are sluggish. They drag their feet. They don't respond. They don't react. They do their own thing their own way. They don't look at other Christians and say, hey, I like how that person lives their life this way. I want to learn from them. I want to imitate them. I want to get together with them and hear how they structure their life, hear how they read scripture, hear how they pray, because I want to imitate their faith. They say, eh, I'm going to do my own thing, my own way. I got this figured out. I'm good to go. I don't need to learn from others. These are marks of immaturity and maturity. What I want us to see as we end here, what I want us to remember is that assurance of salvation is a byproduct of Christian maturity. And if we want to know that God is near, that God is dear, that God loves us, that God welcomes us, the only way for us to grow in that is to grow up. The only way for us to know that is to grow up. But hear the words of the preacher. Hear the encouragement of the preacher. Verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed 
for his sake and serving the saints as you still do. There's a sign of perseverance. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, sign of perseverance, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitator of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Next week, we'll look at the next section and look at what those promises are, the promises of God. It's good for our souls to have confidence in our faith. Therefore, we grow up into Christ, who is the head of the church. As we turn to responding to the gospel now with communion and worship, remember the warning that this warning is sandwiched in between the exhortation for us to draw near to the throne of grace. Chapter 4, verse 16, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Then he gives us the warning. And then chapter 6, verse 13, he goes into God's promises. God's warnings to us are sandwiched between God's love for us. Let's remember that as we respond to the gospel. Let's pray.